to share this morning with us in this time of worship and remembrance and uh, hopefully a change in our mind somewhere that makes us a better person uh, as we live the Christian life in this world. <clears throat> I want to thank Veronica uh, for playing many times those, those people who do things in the background don't get recognized, but I appreciate her uh, and uh, uh, what she does here for us. This morning I want to talk about the temptations of Christ. And I've looked forward to doing this sermon for a little while now because it's very emotion-filled. And I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 and be ready to look at that here in just a couple of minutes. But as we consider the temptations of Christ here in these scriptures in Matthew chapter 4 that we read, there is so much more that could be said than any 30-40 minute sermon could reveal to you. But in these next few moments as we share together, I want to hit some of the high points of these three temptations given to Christ and see how we can apply them to our lives today. In our world, there are groups out there who view the temptations of Christ as being nothing more than a moral story for us to hold on to when we are tempted to take an extra piece of candy or too much dessert, or something that does not belong to us or that we should not have. It's only a fairy tale, a moral story, to get us through difficult times. God's people should never view this event or any event in Scripture as simply something to get us through to a better time, to get us out of that and move on. It should be more than that. God's Word this study in Matthew 4, as well as Luke 4, telling the same story, this is a very vital and important Bible study for us to consider. Jesus Christ must never be seen as simply a, a fairy tale or a nice story. The 21st century that we live in right now, there are far too many that consider this Bible to be antiquated. We're too smart for this. We need to move beyond this and go on to greater and better things. But my friend, we should not see it that way. We should see from Scripture, the Bible says Jesus was tempted in the flesh. He was God 100%, but at the very same time, however unexplainable that is, He was man at the same time, and He suffered what the flesh suffers. We simply need to accept that and move on. Hebrews chapter 2, if you're there, we're going to look at chapter 2 and chapter 4, so you want to be ready for that. In chapter 2, in verses 16 through 18, we read these words. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for, he, him, for since he himself was tempted, hold on to that, in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now chapter 4, notice verses 15 and 16. 
He says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near in confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our help, uh, to help in time of need. These verses tell us very plainly, very clearly, that Jesus understands every small or large temptation that you have brought before you by the old devil. He sympathizes. He's there ready for help to help us when we come to him for that help in temptation and not just lean into the temptation and then say, forgive me, God, for what I've done. The skeptics of every generation have stumbled over the deity of Christ. The skeptics, the atheists. But my friend, it is the believers. It has always been the believers who have stumbled over his humanity. There again, though we cannot explain it completely for our puny, finite minds, it is still the truth because it comes from God's word. Jesus was tempted. Hold on to those three words. I'm going to mention them more than once to emphasize what I'm going to say, what Scripture has to say. He had choice. He had a real, definite choice. That's what we need to see. He was not simply going through the motions so something could be written that we could read and have a nice story that just makes us feel better inside. It's deeper than that. In our text, the Bible states that Jesus here was led up by the Spirit. He was led up by the Spirit. This was God-led. This is not how the devil works. This is eye-to-eye, toe-to-toe, face-to-face, with brass knuckles. This is an attack on our Savior, on the King of the universe in the flesh. Satan by nature is one to attack. We know this. He will attack a person before they're converted to Christ, hoping to keep them out of that, not to listen to that hogwash. And if they don't stop there and become a Christian, he will do everything he can after the birth process to pull them back and say, it's not all that important. Don't worry about Sunday night meeting together. Let the devil tempt you to stay home. Where are we on Sunday night? We listen to the devil? Or do we listen to God who says, forsake not the assembly? He will attack us before, but he will also attack us afterwards. Understand, too, that the temptations we see here in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke 4, these are not all of the temptations that Christ underwent during his 33 years on this earth. There are other temptations that are not written about, but as he lived in the flesh, we need to understand he was tempted, like you and I, gentlemen, like you ladies as well, as we walk through this world. There should be no doubt in our mind, and I want to state this, and I want this to be some, become so concrete in your mind, Jesus was tempted to do some awful things. In other words, as you understand, when we are tempted, things go through our mind, we play with the idea just a little bit, Jesus was tempted. But he did not resort to power, as we're going to see, but he resorted rather to love. When love increases, power decreases. But when power increases in a man's life, 
love kind of gets pushed to the side. I've seen too many times in our churches in the last 30, 40 years where there have been too many power struggles between elders and preacher, between different people in the congregation, power has taken over the love that they need to have for one another. I want us to look at these, these temptations. First of all, in verses 1 through 4, we see the temptation. Jesus is hungry. Now, if you've ever fasted for more than a couple hours... If you've ever done any fasting for a length of time, you know at the end of that, your tummy's rumbling and other people can hear it and you are so hungry. And I can imagine when Satan said, there's some nice stones, why don't you turn those to bread? And I only imagine that as Jesus was tempted, that in his mind he could smell his mother's fresh baked bread cutting off a slice of that, smearing butter on top of it. Am I giving you a sense of, you can smell your own mom's bread, can't you? That's what was put in the mind of Christ. Turn these stones to bread. And I have no no doubt whatsoever in my mind, and I don't think you do either, that he could have taken any one of those stones and turned them into the finest meal that man could ever eat. He had that power, but he didn't do it. He chose the spiritual over the physical. There's a lesson here for us. And I want us to apply this. I'm going to take this into two areas of life. The spiritual side of us loses out every single time when we give in to the desires of the flesh. I'll say that again. It is the spiritual side that always loses out when we give in to the physical temptations of life. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is far too weak. We know that. Satan was tempting the physical side of Christ to give in to the spiritual, or to give, in to, give up the spiritual. And that spirituality of him was in jeopardy now because he was tempted. If he, had been, if he had given in, things would be a whole lot different than we see them today. But he decided within himself, I'm not going to do that. Scripture teaches us that we should not do for man physically what man can do for himself. The Bible says if a man will not work, he should not eat. We shouldn't make a nice meal for a man who all he wants to do is play video games and watch TV. Mommy, make me dinner. And she's 85. And he's 50. That should not be the case. There's a book out there on the market. It's been there for decades. I'm sure there's more than one on this particular subject or idea that tells us that the welfare system of this this country specifically is really a greater harm than it is a good. It started out as something nice, something meant for good, but it only created an uncontrollable, ugly monster where people are demanding, you gave it once, give it twice. You've given me meals for 10 years, now let's make it 11. You owe me, the world owes me, so pay up. But bad matters are only made worse. You've heard people say, I I demand my rights. 
rights to better health care, right to uh, better daycare for my children, right to uh, free speech, right to bear arms, the right to do this and this and this. People demand that you give rights, but nobody's taking responsibility far too many times, even for their own actions. They know they did wrong. They were speeding on the highway, but that stupid cop had to give me a ticket. It's his fault. You see, there's no fault on my part. I didn't do anything wrong. If he hadn't been on the road, if he hadn't been on the road, I wouldn't have gotten a ticket. You see, it's not the cop's fault. It's the person who does the wrong. People want their rights, but they don't want much responsibility. Now, why do I bring this up? I find that even in the church of 2021, and if the Lord tarries till 2050, this may very well still be the case, unless the church wakes up. I find that the attitude of the church of Christ, the church that Christ built, has become a welfare system. That is, God gives all these blessings and I'm just here to receive. I'm just going to take and take and take and God is so good while I sit here and play my video games and do as little as possible. You see, we need to realize, since we have become a Christian, we need to realize just how much God has given us in the form of His Son coming and dying on that cross. Oh, he gave so much. And when we realize that, that should cause us to not expect something without doing anything. We should not expect the reward of eternal glory in heaven with God while we sit here and only expect a welfare check from God every week, doing as little as possible. The crowds in John chapter 6 wanted a bread king. They wanted a bread king. They wanted a system that would continue that fed them while they just sat and listened to a sermon. But Jesus gave them a whole lot more than that. The crux of this situation or of this particular temptation is a legitimate craving, a legitimate desire, a legitimate, a legitimate necessity, but given or taken in an illegitimate way. Nothing wrong with feeding the body. But if we feed the body over taking care of the things of God, it's when we're in trouble. Satan tempted Jesus to do the right thing, but to do it in a wrong way. And the situation here I find is God arranged. God arranged this. And if God arranged this temptation, then God will get him through it. God will get him through it. I believe a person is safer, hungry, with a growling belly, safe in the will of God, than they are filled because they listen to the temptation of the devil. The soul must never be satisfied for the sake of the body. Let me say that one more time. The soul that is eternal must never be sacrificed for the sake of the body, which is temporary. The soul is more than bread for the body. Bread cannot satisfy the soul. It never has and it never will. Even Jesus said there, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Satan tempted Jesus to win with a miracle rather than as a man over the flesh that was tempted. It was, a, it was a real temptation of Jesus Christ. Second temptation is found there in verses 5 through 7. Now this second temptation, I've 
labeled this. This is my, how I labeled this. And you can take this, you can change it, make it say something different. But this is a temptation to mystify, to, to uh, what's the word I have here? Sensationalize in his life. The temptation here was Jesus jumped from the temple. Jump from the, the pinnacle, the scriptures say, of the temple. Now many commentators that I read on this tell us that this is not simply a temptation that the old devil pulls out of his hat. and says, oh, here's a new one, let's try this one. But this is rather a line of thinking from one to two, even into number three. And you'll see that as we get to number three. Consider this. Satan is saying something like this, if we can go into his mind for just a moment. He's saying, okay, you claim through that first temptation that you trust God in the area of physical care for your body. Now let's see how much you really trust God. Let's check this out. Let's see how serious you are. Go ahead, cast yourself from the top of this temple. And as Psalm 91 tells you, you're just going to glide like a feather and the angels will carry you and they will rest you on the ground saying, we got out of another one. This tells us two things. This tells us two things that I want us to see. One, and I hope you saw before I recognize or tell you, the Satan knows Scripture. Oh, he knows Scripture. But two, he never tells the complete truth when he uses Scripture. He misguides. He misleads. He takes Psalm 91 completely out of context and twists it to his own design. Attempts to anyway. Now another consideration of this particular temptation is to the place. And this is interesting because Satan mentions this leap. He could have mentioned this leap from anywhere if it were just about the leap. But it is not just about the leap it's about something greater. Something that we have to study to find. Think about this. Jump from the temple. In Jerusalem, the highest point and the longest fall would be from the southeast corner of the temple, a point that was some three to four hundred feet from the, the Kidron Valley below. Now the word pinnacle in the Greek, and I noticed this, it means top corner. That's what pinnacle means. When I think of pinnacle many times as a child, I thought of uh, the, uh, what we have on church, the steeple. He said him right up on the, on the steeple. I'm thinking him, him down there trying to balance himself. He's not on that kind of thing. He's on the corner. He's on the corner of the temple. Now think about this. Pinnacle, temple. Let's put all of these together. Why the temple? For Jesus to tumble in this area of the temple would mean something specific because as he's up there on the corner of this temple, what does he see below? People going in the temple, out of the temple. Somebody's going to look up and notice. Say, look, they're going to point someone else. Say, look, and all of a sudden, everybody's looking up and Satan is saying, jump! What a show you can put on! What a show, but Jesus looks down, and I wonder if Jesus did not see there's a man and his family who are going to hell. 
I know they're going to go there. There's a woman over here who's been caught in adultery. I know she's not going to make it. My friend, Jesus was tempted to do what the devil said. He was tempted to do that, maybe to save that one man and his family, or that woman who was caught in adultery, or so many other people that he knows that they died at that point and went to hell. Satan knows something that I think you and I forget sometimes or fail to see. Even in our day of 2021, man enjoys illusion or what we refer to as magic. We enjoy entertainment. We enjoy excitement. We enjoy impressive things that a man or a woman can do on the stage and and we just say, wow, isn't that amazing that they could do that? I love to watch America's Got Talent, but there are some crazies on there and I wonder why are they even out there in the first place, but that's another story. But you read the Saturday evening papers on the upcoming Lord's Day services in different uh, churches, Promoters many times will try to outdo themselves because they will talk about having spirit-filled worship times. They will talk about having healing services. If you need something healed, as long as you can't see it with a naked eye, come on in and we will claim to heal you. There are those who have exorcisms, supposedly. Services that will not leave you unchanged or let you leave there unchanged. Tongue speaking, supposedly. Concerts that will make you feel so good inside that when you leave, ten minutes later, you've forgotten about the feeling you had, but there was not one word of, the God, of God's Word spoken to teach somebody something. They simply raise the emotion, and it drops off like a rock. What I want you to realize is this. From the time that God put man on the face of this earth, magic, miracles, Wonders have never done man any good for a long period of time, even those who watch things take place. Look in the Old Testament. After the plagues, the ten plagues, and God's people were protected from that, man began to doubt God. After the crossing of the Red Sea, as they're walking on dry land, and there's walls of water, no bricks to hold it back, They could put their finger in the water and see fish right there. They came to the waters there at the Red Sea and man said they could not see God's concern after the fact. Even after the feeding of the people by the manna from heaven, man failed to see how God could provide for them. After the many victories that man won as they listened to God and did it his way, Man failed miserably, the Israelites failed terribly in the wilderness in unbelief. You see, miracles don't last very long in the eyes of people. Even Herod wanted Jesus, for lack of a better term, he wanted him to do a magic trick. Pull a rabbit out of the hat, do something something nobody else has done. Impress me, Jesus, if you really are who you say you are. People, God is not looking for sensationalism to draw man. And we should not expect sensationalism to be what draws man. God asks only that you and I be willing, obedient, humble, evangelistic servants of His. That's what He wants. Sensationalism won't get get it done. But I can tell you what will. Not because I'm smart and came up with this on my own, but because the Word of God says it is only through the foolishness of preaching 
that man comes to God. I will stand here and be a fool for the rest of my life if it brings one person closer to a a relationship with their God. Now twice in these scriptures, in these temptations, Satan used a big word, if. That's a huge word. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God. Satan was playing with the idea of putting doubt in his mind. Jesus is at what we would call a weak point in the flesh. Forty days is a long time to go without eating. In college, I was given the task of fasting, and I did it for five days. I honestly did it for five days. After three days, I was not hungry. But after the five, and my my wife began to make more and more meals, I said, I can't do this any longer. I'm hungry. But Jesus was at what we might refer to as he was in the flesh, weak at this point. Jesus was tempted. He was tempted. When people doubt in any area of life today, especially when it comes to the Christian realm, I find that too often they will begin to experiment with this, experiment with that, and see if that will work or see if it makes them feel better, rather than getting back to the book and see what God would have them to do or to be. This is what Satan may have been hoping for. But looking at this temptation, I find that Jesus Christ did not, did not lean on the God of sensationalism, but he, re- he relied upon the God of salvation for his sake as well as ours. Satan may have used scripture, and I'm going to get into that here in just a little bit more. But he misused it. He twisted it. He contrives it to his own way of thinking and tries to impress on other people. This is the way. At least you're reading this. So let's twist it for you and make it better than somebody else. The first two temptations. One is to be fed. And two is to be mystified or sensationalism in his life. And this brings us to number three. This is out of verses 8 through 11. And this is the idea of being dominated. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the co-creator of this universe, the one who's coming back to judge the living and the dead, the faithful and the unfaithful, He's asked by Satan here, worship me. The word worship here is proskuneo. It means to draw toward, to give me just a little kiss on the cheek. Jesus, that's all I'm asking. That's all I'm asking here. Just a little kiss on the cheek or even the hand. I don't care which. Draw toward and worship me. Now this Satan is he's full of audacity. I cannot imagine this. I cannot imagine this, but yet Jesus was tempted. If Jesus would only offer a little bit of gratitude for what Satan is offering here, Satan is saying, I won't bother you anymore. There'll be no more interference. First it was physical. Then it was spiritual trusting God, tempting God. But this third one I find to be the most interesting. This is the most fascinating. This is, this is one that I find in my thinking, in my study, in my understanding. At this point, it is not Satan as he says, I'll give you these kingdoms. It's not land 
that he's offering. It's not dirt. It's not groves of trees with the finest fruit hanging from them and the finest beautiful flowers that God has bloomed 24 months a year. So we'll see if you're listening. But there's something else he's offering here. It's not dirt. But he's offering here, this includes people. This includes souls that are on the line. As a matter of fact, it includes your soul and mine that are on the line right here when it comes to these temptations. This third one specifically. If Jesus had simply offered a little bit of respect to Satan, just a little, just minuscule, a little kiss on the hand, just shake my hand and we'll agree to this, then he would have been reduced to something different, not a savior. My friend Jesus was tempted in this area to give in, to throw in the towel. Satan offers us kingdoms, but I notice something here, and, and I hope you notice this too, before, again, before I tell you. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking to a group of people that do not believe in him. They've seen many works come out of him and doing many great things, but all they can focus on is, you did that on the Sabbath day? You raised a dead person on the Sabbath? Who do you think you are? So Jesus turns to them in John 8, and he says, oh, he doesn't pull any punches. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father, it is your will to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and he stands not in the truth. Because there is no, no, no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks in his native language, which is a lie. Because he is a liar and he's the father of all lies and all liars. I hope you see it. Here's my point. Even if, even if Satan had the power, even if Satan had the right, even if Satan had been given the authority by God to give away these kingdoms, what makes us think, first of all, that he's being honest, that he's telling the truth? Because he's the father of all lies. He's an Indian giver. He might hold it out there, but he's going to pull it back when you reach for it. It's not going to be yours. He's only lying, as one man says, when his lips are moving. But consider this, if you will. In all of these temptations by Satan, his goal in presenting and placing these temptations before Christ was for Jesus to give in just a little and not be obedient to the will his Father had set up before time ever began. In placing these temptations before him, he was trying to get Jesus to bend just a little, just a little kiss right here. That'll do fine. Just a little kiss right here. Just bend a little. Come on, Jesus. You can do it. You're tough. If he'd only bend a little, how successful he would be. All three of these temptations, I find, are, are Satan's way of removing God's plan. But I find this third one to be one that he used even during the life of Christ. And I'll point this out in just a little bit. This is his boldest. This is where the most audacity comes into play. Worship me. Who does he think he is? God? Let me, let me remind you of a couple things here. 
And you know this already. But as Scripture says, we need to be reminded of these things. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Why did He leave the glory next to His Father, put on flesh and come to this sinful world to live here and be mistreated, even in all of His teaching? Why did He come here? The same purpose He gave the church once He resurrected and ascended to His Father, and that was to evangelize, that was to win the lost. Luke 19.10 He came to seek, to seek and to save the lost. And number two, how is that mission going to take place? What, is, what was going to set that in motion? How was mankind going to be saved? By the one thing that God had planned out from creation. From creation. His plan was to send His Son, His only begotten Son, into the world for the sole purpose of redeeming souls. That's why He came. Not just to give us nice stories to read once in a while and make us feel good and religious. But he, he came to save souls. To buy mankind back from their selling their soul to the old devil. God's plan for His Son was simply, you're going to die. Son, that's my plan for you. You're going to die. I don't think there's a, a parent in this room who has the idea. Son... I want you to die. If you do, maybe we should talk. But the only way it was going to happen, and as I, I look at the temptations here, I see Satan again trying to remove God's plan, to change God's plan, to hinder his plan uh, in some way, just to interrupt it just a little bit. Satan recognized that Jesus was the Christ. Even his demons said at one time or a few times in Scripture, as they pointed to him, the demons said, we know who you are, thou son of God. Jesus said, shut up. Don't do that anymore. And there's a reason for that if you don't see it. But he knew there was a plan. Satan knew there was a plan. He knew God came up with something. And Satan had from the beginning tried to rid the world of Christ when he was an infant. We know that. But now that Christ was here, Satan had to come up with something different. A different scheme, a different plan. Picture this in your mind. Go back to when Jesus is in his father's carpenter shop. And they're making a, a table or a chair or a stool or a bench of some kind. And as they listen outside, they can hear a crowd form, a mob, as it were, screaming at the top of their lungs. He's wondering what's going on. He opens the door, and to his, to his sight, he sees two men, or three, carrying a cross. I mean, they are stripped of their clothes. They are bloody from head to toe. Their eyes are, are bruised, so they're shut They've been spit on. They've had their hair pulled out. He's watching these guys carry their crosses and walk by his door as he sees them walk up the hill to, to what we know as Calvary. And I can only imagine there's tears in his eyes as he hears the nails going into their hands. The nails going into their feet. And it cringes him to think, that's my end. I see the suffering. I watch as these other people go through this. This is horrible. 
I can only imagine Jesus was not the first to be crucified. How many crucifixions did he see knowing that that was going to be his end? I see it as a real possibility here that Satan was making an offer that would remove that pain. It would remove that suffering. If you will only worship me, just a little kiss on the cheek. Just a small one. And there won't be any pain. There won't be any suffering for you, Christ. You won't have your beard ripped out by someone's hand. And if you've ever had that happen, whether it's your head or a beard, you know how painful that can be. Jesus, you won't have to go through all of that. I hear Satan telling him, those you came to save. Those that you love so much can be yours right now if you will simply give me a little kiss on the cheek. Just a small one. My friend Jesus was tempted. He was tempted in this weak state in his physical life. He was absolutely tempted. And you remember when he went to the garden? Three times. Three times he got down on his knees and he said, Father, if there's any other way, I've seen other men die this horrible death. God, if there's any other way in all of creation, make that happen. Take this cup from me, but not my will. Not my will. Yours be done. Three times. The Father never answered that prayer of taking it away. My friend, you and I need to be so eternally thankful that Jesus Christ did not give in to these temptations, but realize that tremendous price He paid, not only as He suffered on the cross, but the whole trip to get there. He looked beyond the cross and He saw His Father saying, I'm waiting on you, son. When you're done with your mission, you can come home. Oh, what a glorious thought, my friend. The Bible tells us he could have called ten legions of angels and said, I'm out of here. He could have. He could have avoided the suffering of that cross, but he thought more of you and he thought more of me being in glory with him than he did of his own physical, temporary, earthly life. Jesus Christ is the greatest example we will ever have. It's not your preacher, it's not your elders, it's not that we should not be an example. But he is the greatest example we will ever find in all of history. When the temptation comes for you to give in to the fleshly wants, the fleshly desires, even the temptation to neglect the assembling of yourselves together on Sunday night and Lord when midweek Bible study when we study and pray together. When that temptation comes along, who will you listen to? The old devil who says, that, not that important, Or God who says, forsake not. Be there. The desires of the flesh are temporary. But the spiritual decisions that we make, oh, they're for eternity. For ourselves and for other people. How many people, I've thought about this more than once, how many people have gone to hell because I failed to speak with them? How many people have left this world because... You fail to speak to them and teach them the things you know about Christ and His salvation. And they went to hell. I don't know. But that sickens my heart to think that somebody may have gone because I did not take the time to put the TV aside or something else I was doing. 
My friend, we're going to sing an invitation this morning. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Jesus there is speaking to Christians when he says, I'm knocking at the door. And if you hear me, let me come in. The sad thing is, if Jesus is knocking on the outside of your door, he's not on the inside. Open the door wide and let him come in, Christian. Repent. Get right with God. Do those things that would make him pleasing to you and stop giving in to the ways of the old devil. If you're not a Christian, the Bible tells us very plainly how to do that. We have to believe the word first, foremost. Accept what it says. Repent of our life, of of a life that is outside of Christ, no matter how sinful or not you may be. Confess Jesus Christ as the only begotten of the Father. And because we died to ourselves, and our will is no longer a part of what we want to do or should do, we are buried with Christ and there is the first resurrection coming out of that watery grave. And my friend, we don't just rise out of there and sit. We rise out of there and walk in the newness of life. Christian, repent. Non-Christian, don't go to hell. But listen to the things of God. Let's stand and sing our hymn of decision.